Well, hello, everybody. Uh, this is Matt. It's Don Sheets. And we are here um, to Again? do this second Main EMS podcast, what we are affectionately calling Fireside Chats with Don and Matt. If you guys can hear that nice uh, rush in the background, that's actually not um, a fireplace, unfortunately. That's the ventilation system here at Main EMS in Augusta. Luckily, we have a window this time, and we're able to look out at a gray and stormy Thursday afternoon in February. We can see a little bit of the sky past the snowbank out front. That's about it. We hope that you uh, had a chance to listen to the first podcast. We hope that you enjoyed it. And if you're listening to this, it means that you enjoyed it enough you came back to visit us. And we appreciate that. We have a few uh, uh, frequently asked questions that we wanted to uh, focus our first bit of attention on. Following that, we're going to talk about a few updates and then following that, we're going to talk about some education. And um, Don and I are going to talk about allergies and anaphylaxis and, and talk about definitions, pathophysiology, epidemiology, treatment, and how we as an EMS system uh, really make a difference with these patients. All right, so uh, following our format, we're going to start with the frequently asked question. And, and this first question, uh, you know, it's interesting. I used to ask this myself when I was a paramedic student. And so why don't we follow the national scope of practice? And uh, I'm going to chime in here to start with and, and say that I think there's a really big misconception across the EMS about what actually defines scope of practice. And I, and I know that especially for our paramedic students who have uh, especially more recently been involved directly with accreditation and the national registry, um, when we think of national scope of practice, we think, well, everything that I had to learn to become a nationally registered paramedic. That's, that's, our, that's a national scope of practice, and the reality is that that's not. Um, we actually have the National EMS Scope of Practice Model, which was uh, written by NHTSA, DOT, and actually a uh, combined effort with uh, NISEMSO, the National Association of State EMS Officials. And they actually have a really good diagram that uh, Matt actually has up in front of him, and I'll, I'll have him uh, jump in and explain what that diagram actually depicts. Yeah, and Don and I are, are hoping to be able to put together show notes, and we'll have a link to this. It's called the NHTSA National EMS Scope of uh, Practice. And remember that scope of practice isn't just what you were trained to do. Um, in EMS right now, we are there are varying uh, levels at which paramedics or advanced EMTs or EMTs are practicing on across the country. This NHTSA National EMS Scope of Practice model was actually an, it was an effort to attempt to uh, bring everyone to a closer level so that we know in Maine a paramedic means the same thing as in Montana uh, and the same for basics and advanced EMTs. Interestingly, especially at the what used to be called the intermediate level, there were varying abilities and unfortunately those abilities were based on where you were from uh, and each state had different nuances to that level care, and while it was most extremely, or was it while it was most extreme in the intermediate uh, uh, level, it was true for all different levels. And this is a practice based on the work of NHTSA, in particular FICOMS, or which stands for the Federal Interagency Commission on EMS, as well as NASEMSO, or the National Association of State EMS Officials. This is an effort to to make those definitions much more. Uh, uniform across the country. Scope of practice references three, four different things. There is what you were trained to do, and I think Don's exactly right that most folks, especially younger in their career, believe that scope of practice is exclusively 
what you are trained to do. But there are at least three other things that focus, that, that all, uh, all add up to scope of practice. So it's what you're trained to do, what the state licenses you to do, it's what your medical director or whatever medical board at the state level authorizes you to do, typically through protocols. And then on top of all of that, it's what you've been certified to do and certified as competent to do. And I think it's those four things that add up to your scope of practice. And it's the intersection of those four things, your training, your protocol, your license, and your certification as competence that adds up to your scope of practice. And unless you have met all those requirements, then you're not practicing in your scope of practice. And for those of you who are able to see this diagram and the subsequent definitions in the NHTSA National EMS Scope of Practice, um, that is on page number 12. So go to that. There are some, again, good diagrams as well as good definitions in this, in this document for all who are interested. I just want to throw out a, you know, a good example. So you, know, you think about back to training, and you know, what we do in our protocols has a tendency to change here in the state of Maine over time. Um, and, and I think about you know, RSI. I was taught to do RSI when I went to paramedic school. I haven't looked at the process of doing RSI in five years. Um, at this point, I wouldn't be competent to perform that skill even if we added that into scope of practice or into our formulary in the state of Maine, I should say. Um, so even if we were to add that in, I would still need to go back at the local level and actually demonstrate competency in order to actually have that be included in what is, by this, determined as scope of practice. Yes. Um, so when we really look at our, our protocols in the state of Maine, which is another thing that people often associate with scope of practice, and we look at, again, your training, what you're comp certified as competent to do, and our protocols, our protocols are one of the things where people really feel we deviate from the scope of practice. And, and interestingly enough, if you actually take the time to read through this document, this document is not uh, geared towards you can perform XYZ procedure, it's that you can treat a patient to a specific level. And that you can treat them with a you know modality of care that is goal-directed in getting them to um, the best place. So looking at airway management, it actually talks about overall that you can manage a patient's airway with various modalities, so whether that's a blind insertion airway device, a BVM with an OPA, you know, intubation. It's that you're getting to the end result where you're oxygenating and ventilating a patient appropriately. So when we look at our protocols here in the state of Maine, and you actually compare it to this document, we are actually operating at the national scope of practice at almost every level um, and that what we've done in the state of Maine is we've refined the drug formula that you were taught in school and we've brought it down to a manageable level where you can become an expert with that medication which leads to patient safety and I, I truly believe that all of us are here because we want to do the best thing for our patients and it's been proven time and time again in fact we talked about it briefly during our last um, podcast is that the more medications we have for specific treatments, the more dangerous that becomes for our patients. Yeah, Don, I think um, looking at the National Scope of Practice, we actually um, not only meet those individual levels, but on at least with a couple different things, we exceed the National Scope of Practice. And in fact, 
the two things that come to mind right away are at the level of the advanced EMT or the level we formally called intermediate uh, EMT. And the two things that come right to mind are first and foremost the uh, ability for the advanced EMT to monitor rhythm and then secondly uh, adding CPAP into the uh, uh, advanced EMT scope of practice. Those are two ways in which we have advanced beyond the national recommendations are. We've done that in particular because of input from around the state, from providers, and uh, from hospitals who found those levels of uh, ability very useful in day-to-day -day operations. Great. Um, For any questions about that stuff, again, please, uh, we were really intending to try to answer questions. We really intend to create dialogue and communications Please, if you have any follow-up questions about this uh, scope of practice discussion, contact Don, uh, and we will add in answers to your questions in upcoming podcasts. Awesome. Uh, next question is, why do CEHs need to be pre-approved? And uh, I think that that's going to really rest on me for this one. So uh, if you look across the spectrum of healthcare and allied health, um, even for physicians, Education has to be pre-approved across the board. And one of the, our biggest concerns with CHs in the state of Maine is, you know, it offers us a check to ensure that high-quality education is happening and that the right people are providing that education. That, you know, the brand-new EMT walking out of their, you know, EMT course probably shouldn't be teaching a class in, you know, cardiology and cardiac monitoring. They're not really qualified to be teaching that. So it offers us a check to ensure that providers are getting good education from qualified people, and it really just keeps us in line with the rest of allied health in terms of having everything pre-approved. All right, Matt, this next one's for you. Hmm. When dealing with combative patients, does the MDPB actually think about the safety of the providers in the sense that currently in our protocols, in order for me to provide sedation to a patient, I actually have to call medical control before I actually sedate a patient? That's a great question, Don. I think um, taking a step back, I think it's um, helpful to know that the, the MDPB is the, the function of the MDPB amongst the various things that the MDPB, do, MDPB does is to create protocols. And I, I personally, and I think I, I share this with the rest of the physicians on that board, feel as if our protocols are not only are packed with patients that we will do our best every time we encounter them, but they are a tool that should help you in that same effort and not only help you take care of patients, but we should never put ourselves in harm's way. And the way that the, the combative patient protocol um, uh, evolved over time, we thought we had uh, that protocol set to offer you the safest and most robust way to manage a patient who was combative or aggressive on scene. I think what's, we've, what we've recognized in the last couple of years, especially uh, in light of some of the recent uh, recreational drugs and situations that have um, uh, affected Maine, that in certain situations there may not be time for providers to access online medical control to provide those medications. One of the things that the MDPB is doing right now is reviewing our protocols and updating our protocols 
your regional directors have most likely been communicating with you or your service leadership about this update and polling you for your input. But one of the things we have heard loud and clear is the, the interest in having the ability to provide uh, medications to combative patients uh, either with or without online medical control. And we're very interested in updating that protocol. Unfortunately, I can't tell you what that protocol will be. We had hoped to actually cover that section. It's our final section to review, the yellow section. Uh, but because of a lot of business that we had going on this month, we weren't able to accomplish that. But in talking to Dr. Peter Goff, who's leading that discussion, one of the things that he's going to bring up is uh, the, the, the need for online medical control. And so uh, in the new protocols, which will go live on December 1st, 2013, uh, you may see a very big change in that regard, um, both in the need to call online medical control, but also a range of medications to provide patients. Uh, I'm, I'm interested and we're interested at the MDPB level in giving you a potent tool uh, to use within your comfort level and based on your training and, and uh, to manage these, these patients. If you have interest in being involved in that discussion, please contact Don and forward your comments to us through the website or through uh, Don's email. And once we begin getting close to a final product for the protocols, we'll make those available for folks to review. Um, again, once we get to that final product, it won't be for comments. It will be mostly for review before the educational products come out for them. One thing I'd just like to add to uh, discussion about combative patients is EMS providers inherently um, feel the need to help. It's, I, again, I think that's why we do what we do. But at the end of the day, people need to remember that if you can't safely manage a patient, you are not obligated to stay there. You can always leave and contact law enforcement. You know, yes, we want to protect people from themselves. We want to protect other people from them if they're combative and agitated. But at the end of the day, if you get yourself hurt, you can't help anybody. So it's important to walk away. I think Don brings up a good point, and I, I, I think we've learned a lot from uh, the recent epidemic of bath salts in our state. Remember that bath salts really affected the Midcoast area and the Bangor area, and based on some really good work from our regional physicians, both Dr. Jonathan Busco, but also Dr. Whitney Randolph, who work and practice out of Eastern Maine Medical Center and Penn Bay Medical Center, respectively. We've learned a lot of the value in high-level engagement with law enforcement and a collaborative approach to these patients. Remember that when there is an imminent threat, um, Don's, Don's comments about your own personal safety need to be recognized. There is this urge to help, but sometimes that help needs to be facilitated and coordinated with law enforcement. Um, uh, and I, we, what we've learned from the work of Doctors Busco and, and Randolph is the value in upfront, pre-case discussions, dialogue, and coordination with law enforcement on the best way to manage these patients. And a lot of their lessons we hope to incorporate into this, this protocol uh, as, it, as it develops. That's the combative patient protocol toward the end of the yellow section of the, pro, of the main EMS protocols. All right, so a couple of updates for you all. Um, as, as Matt just kind of told you, uh, protocols are nearing 
um, our, hopefully our last month of uh, work on well your work on those. Uh, <laughs> our work doesn't ever end on those, do they? <laughs> no, they don't. But uh, the MDPB should be wrapping those up hopefully this month. Again, they they were uh, unfortunately delayed due to a, a snowstorm somewhere in there. I think January, right? Yes. Yeah, January. We lost the month of January. It disappeared completely. Uh, but so, we will be done with the 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 major review in March, uh, which is still within our 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 window. We we wanted to be able to give the education committee a number of months to review the work that the MDPB did to allow them enough time to create really good educational products for all of you. Good. So uh, you guys should be able to, like Matt said, you should be able to see those shortly um, once we kind of have a pretty good idea lockdown of, of what's happening. Um, just as happened in 2011, those will go out for review for people. Uh, along the same line, our rules changes uh, are going live May 1st. Um, those have all that's gone uh, to the governor's office. It's come back. Uh, there are only a few little grammar changes, periods, things like that. Um, those are actually up on our website. They can be uh, viewed now. There's a, on, on uh, our website. There's a, there's actually a rules and uh, tab that you can actually click on, and you uh, they're available to view there. And uh, lastly, just an update on the uh, Memzed podcasts uh, thanks to uh, John Powers actually he's done a significant amount of work between uh, last month and this month and has actually integrated a, a pretty robust podcast generator that's going to offer us a little bit more flexibility in how we um, disseminate this information to all of you and one of the benefits that this is going to offer is it, it works a little bit more like a blog so as we've kind of mentioned a few times, we're actually going to be able to put up show notes, which will, um, we can put up studies, we can put up diagrams, links to uh, specific articles, so that if you want to see what we're actually looking at and what we're talking about, you can either uh, download those or, or find those links before you listen to this podcast, or you can go back and look at them afterwards. Uh, so hopefully that'll actually uh, add to uh, the learning that comes out of this. All right, so moving on to education. Well, what, one, one thing if I can, uh, we, as mentioned earlier, John and I are very interested in your input on this. I know that we're fairly early on in this, this uh, podcast process, but please let us know uh, what your thoughts are, um, what your in, if you have any questions, if you have any FAQs you want to ask us, if you have any updates you're interested in, and also for educational topics moving forward. We really do want to tailor this to you and make this as meaningful as possible to to uh, your ongoing learning. Fantastic. So as, as Matt said earlier, we want to uh, touch base on, on uh, anaphylaxis today um, and, and allergies in general. Um, and really we want to drive a discussion about, uh, I, I guess a good place to start would be um, defining anaphylaxis and the difference between anaphylaxis and yeah, I think that's a great idea, John. Don, is to really start off looking at definitions. Um, there are a lot of different definitions out there, and a lot of different terms folks use. And 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 I think it's fair to say that folks sometimes will blur the concepts of allergy and anaphylaxis together and use the terms interchangeably. And interestingly, when you look critically at the medical literature, 
there isn't a good definition of one versus the other. So maybe we can start off by defining these a little better for ourselves. So coming out the gate, everyone understands what we mean. So first and foremost, allergy is a spectrum of symptoms that happen um, when folks are exposed to an allergen. And those things that can happen include urticaria, they include angioedema, they include GI symptoms, pulmonary symptoms, and they also include cardiovascular symptoms. I think uh, anaphylaxis gets thrown in there, and sometimes, again, people use those terms interchangeably, but for our purposes, I'd like to use the term anaphylaxis to mean an allergic reaction involving pulmonary or cardiovascular symptoms. And when we say pulmonary symptoms, I would include uh, uh, angioedema involving the airway, so posterior or pharyngeal uh, angioedema or angioedema involving the posterior aspect of the tongue. So uh, I want to delineate those because the way we approach minor symptomatology is different than the way we would approach major symptomatology, and we'll use the term anaphylaxis to delineate and to identify the major symptomatology of, of allergic-type reactions. Now, there are some other things out there that can occur, too, uh, and we're not going to really touch base on those today, but those include adverse drug reactions. So uh, how many of you have heard, oh, I can't take ibuprofen because it upsets my stomach? That's probably not an allergy. It's probably an adverse drug reaction. Um, another thing are anaphylactoid reactions or reactions that look like anaphylaxis, but they're not through the same pathophysiology that we'll discuss in a, in a little while. Uh, it's a different type. We, we will treat them similarly, but it's a different type reaction, and it's not a true uh, allergy or it's not a true anaphylaxis-like uh, process. And then finally, there's other things that can look like anaphylaxis or allergies, and those include ACE inhibitor-related reactions or significant, significant angioedema from ACE inhibitors. And we won't, again, touch base on that, but th that's, those are some of the other things that sometimes get bulked in here. And we're going to really drill down and focus on the combination of allergies and anaphylaxis. So once we've gotten the definitions out of the way, the next step is to really talk about pathophysiology and what differentiates allergies and anaphylaxis from these other things, from adverse reactions, from anaphylactoid reactions, and from ACE inhibitor reactions. So, Don, why don't you walk us through what that pathophysiology is for these, for these events? All right, so we'll see if I can pronounce all my words that I need to remember today. I'm having a, a I might be suffering from some, uh, you know, posterior angioedema right now because I, I can't seem to pronounce things at all. <laughs> um, What's okay, I have an EpiPen if you need. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Great. Uh, so what Matt's kind of been alluding to is that there's actually, uh, if we back up a little bit and talk about the fact that out, an allergic reaction, whether anaphylactic or, you know, a more um, subtle reaction, it's referred to as a hypersensitivity reaction. And if you look, there's five major classifications. Um, Matt has actually pulled up here for us. Um, Let me get them for Don here as we're moving. I just messed this up, unfortunately. Sorry, guys. But there's there are five major uh, classic class. There's a, a a group of folks who have, have created a classification scheme of hypersensitivity reactions, and type one is what we're talking about today, which are the the what you learned about in your uh, initial training, and what we're talking about allergies and anaphylactic type reactions. But there are other things uh, out there. That's type uh, one. Type two includes the cytotoxic reactions. 
which includes cytopenia, nephritis, type 3, or the immune complex reactions that includes various vasculitides and serum sicknesses. And then type 4, where the delayed reactions are from contact dermatitis, are what we see in contact dermatitis, like poison ivy type reactions. And there's actually a type 5, which is an idiopathic uh, uh, hypersensitivity reaction that we don't quite understand completely. What's important about all of these reactions is that the, 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 there's a cellular process that's going on that includes release of IgE, sometime other, sometimes other cytokines, IgM, and other, other, uh, other mediators are being released, but it's occurring at the cellular level. So, for instance, um, what's going on, on these, in these type 1 reactions are that your body becomes sensitized to an allergen, right? So say that Don is allergic to bee stings, and he's out uh, harvesting honey, and he inadvertently gets stung that, by a bee. That would be a really bad choice if I was allergic to bees. <laughs> Maybe you didn't know about it at, this, uh, at the onset, uh, but he, uh, there are three phases to these type 1, or three steps to these type 1 reactions. One is called sensitization. Sensitization occurs when Don gets his first bee sting. Once he gets his first bee sting, an allergen is introduced to his body, that his body recognizes as foreign and starts creating a response against. Now, that first response against the, the, the allergen is to actually create um, specialized receptors that get embedded on a bunch of different cells, including his mast cells. Now, these, res- these are, 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 are these immune complexes that are specific to a protein and the B venom that he was exposed to. And it doesn't happen on the first exposure. It only happens on subsequent exposure. So the second time Don gets exposed to this bee venom, he now has this major response, which is the second uh, step or the early phase reaction to the bee venom. Uh, And that would include degranulation of mast cells, release of cytokines, including histamine. It would include all the things we talked about earlier, urticaria, angioedema, uh, sometimes GI symptoms, sometimes pulmonary symptoms, and sometimes cardiovascular symptoms. And then finally, the third step are these late uh, phase reactions, which are additive and uh, cumulative effects of the uh, repeated exposures to that same uh, allergen, or in this case, the bee venom. So a little piece of anaphylaxis and allergy trivia, Don. Do you know the first person uh, that we know in recorded history? Who were uh, the first recorded history of uh, of allergies? I, I couldn't give you a name, <laughs> but uh, based upon some information uh, that was passed along my way recently, uh, I can tell you that it happened in Egypt and that it was a pharaoh. Yeah, you're exactly right. It was 2,640 BC is the first re- uh, event uh, that was possibly allergy or anaphylaxis. Uh, this was in Egypt. It was an Egyptian pharaoh who actually died from a wasp envenomation. We believe that that was the first recorded uh, uh, case of allergy and anaphylaxis in, in the world history. Interesting enough. I think we're try- we are We want to just give you guys a little bit of background, a little bit of foundation, and some of this is pathophysiology um, uh, uh, and um, we are not typically going to see an EMS, those type 2, type 3, or even type 5 reactions, we're going to see mostly the immediate events such as the allergic type 1 reactions and sometimes see consequences of contact dermatitis um, in our practice. So one of the things that um, I think is always important to, to 
touch-upon is uh, the symptoms we see and, and linking that back to our pathophysiology. So we think about the histamine release causes, you know, um, vascular permeability. We start to kind of get what we you know, refer to as like the leaky vessels. We start yeah. to get edema. Um, and then, of course, when that happens, we start to get, you know, decreased blood pressure because our systemic vascular resistance is lower. We start to get, you know, um, edema, like I said. And, you know, these are some of the symptoms that we often initially think of when we think of anaphylaxis, that patient who's got the low BP, heart rate through the roof, you know, but it's not compensating. Now they're having the edema, they're having, you know, eutocaria. And what's, of course, the first medication that we think of? That's a question to you. Oh, sorry, <laughs> question to me. Um, so uh, that's a great, great question, Don. Um, uh, the first question, I think the first medication we always think about is epinephrine, and we, we, we've learned a lot about the effects of epinephrine and allergy and what epinephrine does. Remember that epinephrine is a non-selective alpha-1-2, beta-1-2 agent, and it does a lot of different things for us, including increasing systemic vascular resistance by increasing vaso, uh, vasoconstriction. It also causes bronchodilatation, which is beneficial in these cases because remember the, the bronchi will, will dilate, and it's also a, and that's a beta-2 function. Alpha-1 is the is the peripheral vascular uh, 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 constriction. And then our, our beta-1 uh, functions are increased chronotropy and increased inotropy, or making the heart beat faster uh, and making the heart beat uh, uh, stronger. Um, so I think another, so Don's right on that there are a number of symptoms we get, and I, I kind of divide these into four, maybe five, uh, five categories. And I'll start off with the ones with urticaria and angioedema, which I think you can either separate or you can combine. Um, so that's one or one and two. They're kind of similar in that it's, what, like Don mentioned, leaky vasculature involving the skin. The major difference between urticaria and angioedema is the layer of skin that that leaky vasculature is in. So in urticaria, that layer is very superficial. And because there's a ton of uh, nerves in the superficial skin, that's a pretty uncomfortable, um, uh, uh, uncomfortable process, typically very itchy. But we see swelling, we see redness, we see itching, and they look like hives. You guys have all seen hives. They're these um, swollen, erythematous, raised lesions that are typically very itchy, right? Um, urticaria is the same underlying pathophysiology. It's just happening at a deeper lev level of, this, of the skin, typically in the submucosal or the subcutaneous level. And uh, it uh, causes uh, um, swelling typically in and about the face, uh, including the eyes, the facial structure, the lips. And when we start really getting concerned for in angioedema is when it involves the oropharyngeal or the posterior oropharyngeal axis, which would include the tongue or the posterior tongue and the other visible parts of the oropharynx. Um, those are all kind of spectrums of, angio, of angioedema and where they might, may occur. Now, angioedema, because it's in a deeper la layer of skin, because that is a less innervated uh, area, these are typically not itchy. There are some reports of itchiness with these. They're typically not. Um, the other place that we see symptoms, uh, so that's symptoms one or one and two. The next place is pulmonary symptoms. And we've all recall uh, that these patients can become either uh, stridulous or have developed strider or can develop bronchospasm. Uh, from that spasm, uh, from uh, from bronchospasm, so they'll get wheezy, 
Um, not, not completely like asthma because asthma is a combination of bronchospasm, increased mucus production, and inflammation, and this is just the spasm part of it. Um, and again, that's one reason why we use epinephrine to decrease that spasm component. Another area that we're, or another symptom group that we're common or we're familiar with are the cardiovascular symptoms. And in particular, like Don said, this is um, vasodilatory effects. Sometimes folks get uh, presyncope. Sometimes they can become some, uh, they can go on to develop syncope. They also can be very hypotensive. Now it's the the airway, pulmonary, and, and cardiovascular uh, symptoms that we all learned about in our early EMS education as the, the, certainly, the, certainly the deadly um, type of symptoms. But another symptom group that many folks are not familiar with are actually the GI symptoms. And the way I like to think about this, and I, I might be completely off base, but this is the way I think about it at least, the, what's happening to the lips and the tongue and the oropharynx with angioedema is doing, we're seeing the same effect in the gut. And so we can see abdominal uh, cramps, we can see nausea, vomiting, and sometimes even diarrhea in these patients. And to truly diagnose someone with an allergy or anaphylactic reaction, we need to see a combination of the urticaria slash angioedema, pulmonary, cardiovascular, and GI symptoms to, uh, to truly diagnose uh, a person with those. And also, within that, def that definition is exposure to an allergen, either known or, or unknown. So those are the symptoms um, uh, of, of allergies and anaphylaxis. Um, I, think, uh, I think it's really important that we actually keep in mind the atypical, the, G the GI that can exist with people. Um, interestingly enough, when I started trying to pull some information uh, together when we started talking about this topic, in pre-hospital emergency care, um, the October-December of 2012, volume 16, number four, um, actually did a study looking at paramedics' ability to recognize um, anaphylaxis. And they actually broke it into the traditional symptoms of, you know, the itchy skin, the, you know, low BP, things like that, with the atypical, which includes the GI that you just discussed. And the majority of paramedics were really good at identifying um, your standard anaphylaxis. And it was actually a very low percentage were actually able to identify atypical symptoms. So I think it's really important to stress that we look for those other um, atypical signs. You know, we talk a lot about atypical presentation for MI patients. You know, this is another patient who we really still need to catch early and make sure that we look for those atypical symptoms. That's a great point. Is, is uh, that's a that's a great point, and that's a really neat incorporation of a recent article that came out in what we call PEC or pre-hospital emergency care. That's a that's a neat study that maybe we can post that on the on the site as well. It'd be kind of cool. Give it a shot. Yeah. Um, so how often does this happen? Um, how often do allergic type reactions happen? I uh, I did uh, so I, I think in the literature you'll see varying different frequencies for allergic reactions. Most folks say that there's not a good way to track these, that they're underreported. Well, interestingly enough, this article actually looked yeah. at that too. Oh, great. And I can give you a number. Fantastic. Roughly 0.5% of all EMS calls across the country um, theoretically actually involve a, a, an, allergic, an allergic or anaphylactic reaction. You know, that's a really interesting number to throw out there because I, I remember recently seeing the number of calls that we did as main EMS in 2012 was in the 260,000 range. Yeah. 
and I happen to pull the number of times our first impression, our, our provider impression was allergy or anaphylaxis, and it was 1,201. So we're actually, that's pretty close for us, is that close to 0.5%. Uh, it, was, it was interesting. It was, uh, it was roughly 16.2 million EMS calls that actually happened across the U.S. 16.2. Uh, 16.2 million wow. in a year. Hmm. Um, now, granted, I think this was actually looking, this study was actually looking at data from um, 2000. 2011, I believe. Um, so, you know, we're probably still somewhere around this. I actually worked at about 800,000 wow. allergy and anaphylaxis calls for EMS providers in the country. That's pretty impressive. In a year. Yeah. Now, there's uh, also a little bit of data out there on the reported mortality from anaphylactic reactions or uh, these events, and that's about 1%. I don't know if your article had anything different, but what I found was about 1%. Um, I don't recall reading a specific mortality rate. Um, but that those that do die from anaphylaxis typically do so before they ever reach a hospital. And obviously that's uh, our backyard. It's our playground. Yeah, you know, that, and that's a nice segue because I believe very strongly that what we do matters. And that's one reason why uh, I'm so interested in EMS, that what we do matters. And I believe that what we do matters uh, in a lot of different ways. There are some ways in which we... Um, we uh, affect morbidity, i.e., we affect uh, the patient's uh, course and outcome. I believe that we set the stage for, for care. I believe the quality care starts with us. And I believe in a, lot, in a lot of situations, we are the brokers to mortality or to saving life. A great example of that is cardiac arrest. We, in EMS, save lives. The hospital saves lifestyles. And this, this, this concept has been... I'm, I believe proven recently in the last couple of years in the medical literature that a few studies looking at uh, uh, the patients who have out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, if you don't have ROSC in front of an EMS provider, if there's no return of spontaneous circulation in front of EMS, then there's unlikely going to be a good outcome. I, I believe that anaphylaxis is one of those situations in which we, we really are able to affect mortality as well as morbidity. So let's... Um, Let's talk about that a little bit, and let's talk about um, the way that these patients may present. So we may have patients with known allergens who get inadvertently exposed to something. A great example of this, I took care of a patient recently who has a known tree nut allergy, and apparently um, her family went out and bought a loaf of bread, and that loaf of bread had been sitting next to a walnut loaf in the store, and when she took a when she made a piece of toast, she took a bite, and she felt some tingling in her mouth and said, uh-oh, these are my allergic reactions. So she gave herself all the medications that she, uh, that she was trained to give herself, called 911, and came to the hospital. That's one, one side of this, this the one, one example of history we may get. Another example is folks who develop symptoms of anaphylaxis or allergy, but they don't have a known allergen, and, and they come to us after... Um, uh, with an unknown allergen, and we see symptoms manifesting similar to uh, other allergies, and we begin initiating treatment. I think when uh, we get into the uh, spectrum of anaphylaxis, which again we'll define as angioedema involving the posterior part of the oropharynx or the airway, pulmonary symptoms, and, and cardiovascular symptoms, that's when all of our training and emergency care kicks in, and that's what's really neat about what we do is that we multitask and we treat as we're doing a history and we have to work fast to save a patient's life. 
So let's talk about how we do that and what the treatments include. And this gets into what Don was talking about earlier and uh, talking about the medications that we think of to treat allergies and anaphylaxis, why we use them and how they work. And the first one we mentioned, or Don mentioned, was epinephrine. And I think he's exactly right that epinephrine is the one that we all go to in our mind as the most important medication. Remember that epinephrine we can give in a couple different ways. I, uh, we can give it, uh, or the, 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 the way that we typically give it is intramuscular. Um, and let's talk about uh, what epinephrine does. So we said earlier that epi is a non-selective alpha-1, alpha-2, beta-1, beta-2 agent. We talked about what those things are. But, Don, what is the function and purpose of giving a patient epi when they're having an anaphylactic reaction? Sure. Really what we're trying to do, we're trying to make sure that... Uh, let me back up for a second. Uh, our purpose is to treat symptoms. It's really what epinephrine is going to do. It's not going to fix the problem. It's going to treat the symptoms, and it's going to buy us time. And I, I want to put that up up front because I think it's a really important distinction for us to make because my purpose of asking you what our first thought of uh, treatment is for anaphylaxis is that it can actually um, it can be a double-edged sword because I think people get lulled into a false sense of security with it. Because what we're going to do is we're going to cause that systemic vascular res resistance because it's a potent vasoconstrictor. So we're going to see, um, hopefully, that their blood pressure is going to come back up. We're probably going to see a heart rate elevation. So we'll see the BP come up. Heart rate will be up. We might see some uh, improvement in their airway symptoms because we might get rid of that bronchospasm. So we're buying ourselves minutes realistically um, you know we think about how often we're supposed to give it about every five minutes if needed um, so we probably have a window of about five minutes where now we can start getting other treatments on board uh, and again this is for our true anaphylactic reaction our next drug that we often think about or historically has been in our protocols in the state of Maine is diphenhydramine or Benadryl Matt, I want to talk a little bit about, actually I'll start with um, our traditional routes for diphenhydramine can either be IM or IV, and actually we should jump back and actually cover what the dosing of epinephrine is. Yeah, yeah, yeah so maybe we'll back up a little bit. Yeah, so let's back up and talk about epi and the routes of administration. The, the mainstay is giving epinephrine intramuscularly, and the, main, that's, the reason that's the mainstay is that number one, it's fast, you do not rely on an IV, it's easy, and it gets really rapidly absorbed, absorbed through large muscles. The lateral thigh is probably the best place to put it. Um, and interestingly, when we look at the, uh, the uh, uh, instances in which there are adverse reactions to epinephrine, it's always in intravenous applications of epinephrine. The dose, what is the dose we're using, Don, for uh, IM epi? For adults, it's going to be 0.3 milligrams. And what? Remember, there's two concentrations of, of, of epinephrine. Which are we using for anaphylaxis in the intramuscular route? We're going to be using 0.3 milligrams of epinephrine, one to one thousand. Excellent. So remember, we give for adults. We give epi one to one thousand in the IM route. We use epi one to ten thousand for the IV route. Now, remember. 
In your protocol, if you read the last bit, there's this option to contact online medical control to repeat um, uh, the, any of the treatments that we talk about. So that's uh, diphenhydramine, epinephrine, uh, epi-IM. But there's also an option for epi-IV in shock or in cardiovascular collapse. And that is the 1 to 10,000 uh, epi. We don't give 1 to 1,000 intravenously um, if we want to have good outcomes in our patients, that is. It's only 1 to 10,000 we give to folks um, intravenously. And we don't push an amp of 1 to 10,000 uh, like we do in cardiac arrest. We don't give that full concentration, the full dose of that concentration epinephrine if the person is not in cardiac arrest. In fact, uh, the way the protocol reads is to give 0 0.5 to 1 ml of epinephrine, 1 to 10,000, um, pushed over one minute, repeated as needed every, in every 10 to 20 minutes. So we're only given small doses of that 1 to 10,000 epinephrine, um, uh, essentially push dose pressors in, in these folks in an effort to bring up their, um, their, uh, their uh, or to increase systemic um, vascular resistance uh, uh, in this case. Now, um, there's been some recent um, literature on push dose pressors, and we may be changing some of the concentrations and the directions around here, but make remember that that's an online medical control discussion if your patient is perimortem or is, has or has, uh, has arrested because of their uh, allergic reaction. The, most of the time, you'll be delivering epi in an IM uh, manner, but know that you do have the options for IV slash IO uh, in perimortem situations or in patients who collapse from anaphylaxis. It's also important to distinguish that um, the IV application is paramedic only with medical control. Uh, and I, I want to circle back to the fact that the, the other great thing about epinephrine and the way our protocols are is that um, EMT through paramedic, there is the ability to uh, provide this medication in an IM fashion. The EMT level, it's with an auto injector, which a lot of information out there says that that's probably the safest way for us to be giving epinephrine. Uh, even at the paramedic level, it's easy, it's fast, it's available. You know, I know even a lot of ERs actually in their anaphylaxis kit actually stock um, an epi auto injector because it's a fast delivery system. Um, of course, it's also a big needle that can get through pants and other things so you don't have to worry about exposing. Um, so it's also important to remember, uh, again, another thing that I know discussions have been out there and we've been pulling data about is um, the number of services that uh, carry epinephrine auto injectors and actually have that ability at the basic level. Um, and more information will be coming out, out about that. So. Uh, another thing to keep in mind is our protocols come about. Great. Now, you know, we focus a lot on the, the alpha effects of epinephrine and the fact that it increases systemic vascular resistance and vasoconstriction, essentially. Um, but don't forget there's also the beta-2 effects, which we mentioned earlier. That's the bronchodilatory effect, since there is a bronchospastic component of anaphylaxis, and when we're seeing pulmonary symptoms, we'll ameliorate those as well as some of the uh, angioedemic effects of anaphylaxis. Great. So that's the first medication, and probably one of the ones, as John mentioned, we, we, we go to early on, um, 
Interestingly, it is one of the more one one of the medications of the cocktail of medications available to us in EMS. There are, are adverse reactions. Those adverse reactions most commonly happen in the IV route. Many patients who get it independent of the route are going to have tachycardia. If uh, they're not, not tachycardic to begin with, they will become tachycardic after receiving epinephrine. They can become flushed, a little diaphoretic, etc. All right, so next we'll move on to the diphenhydramine. Um, yeah, so diphenhydramine, i.e. Benadryl. Um, what is what is Benadryl? What's the what's the term that we use to describe the class of medications that Benadryl is? Well, interestingly enough, yeah, we're talking about histamine release, and it's an antihistamine. Absolutely. So remember that when an allergen, when when your mast cells come into contact with an allergen, uh, they the they the receptor or the allergen specific receptors and the mast cell receptors meet up and that causes that causes what's called degranulation of the mast cells and the mast cells spill out histamine which is one of the cytokines that causes all the problems we're talking about angioedema hives bronchospasm etc cetera, etc cetera. and diphenhydramine is an antihistamine and so what that does remember there's two histamine receptors there's the H1 histamine receptor that's the one that we're most concerned about here and diphenhydramine blocks that receptor uh, so that histamine can't interface at the level of other cells. So diphenhydramine is an antihistamine that blocks the effects of histamine at the histamine receptor. The way I always remember the H1 receptor and tie this all back together is that if we jump back to the pathophysiology and we talked about the hypersensitivity reaction, this is actually a, a type 1 or H1 reaction. Ah, look at you. It's, I have to remember things somehow. <laughs> so if you just, my simple way of remembering, you know, H1, it's a type 1 hypersensitivity reaction. It's an H1 um, blocker. So an interesting thing, um, some of you may have had allergic or anaphylactic reactions or allergic reactions. Some of you might have family or friends that have had these type of reactions. And you may, you or your loved ones or your friends may have been discharged from the emergency department on cimetidine, Tagamet, or some of the other h two blockers. Now we commonly think of H2 blockers uh, to, to treat um, ulcers uh, because there is an H1 and an H2 receptor and the H2 blockers, um, medicines like uh, Pepsid for instance, are, 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 were originally intended to uh, treat ulcers. But there happens to be about a 10 to 15 percent cross-reactivity between the H1 and the H2 blockers and so sometimes when we're looking for that little extra oomph will add on uh, an H2 blocker as well. The classic one described is called Tagamet or Cimetidine. Um, that's the one that we did most of the original, or the, not we, but most of the original literature was done on. Um, so if you see that, know it's for the same purposes of diphenhydramine, and there is a small amount of cross-reactivity between those two re re uh, receptors, and it's for that purpose. So that's diphenhydramine. I think it's also really important to remember that we started talking about it with, with the epinephrine that there there are again with the IV application of epinephrine there there are um, side effects you know tachycardia things like that that can still happen to the IM and if you look at it and you look at the two drugs that we've covered so far what are the common reactions that happen with diphenhydramine um, or well, side effects I should say so uh, let's, let's first talk about what, we, what it does. So by blocking that, that histamine receptor, 
Uh, there are a lot of things that patients experience, and that's decrease in the urticaria, decrease in the itching that occurs in these reactions. Um, and some, uh, it also stabilizes to some extent, or it helps reduce some of the edema we see, angioedema, urticaria, et cetera. So what you're really telling me is that diphenhydramine is actually going to ultimately stop the reaction from getting any worse. Yeah, it's going to be one of the medications that stops the reaction from getting worse, yeah. Okay. So we've got epinephrine, which is going to effectively temporarily mask our symptoms, treat the symptoms, and keep us alive for that period of time. And then we've got diphenhydramine, which is going to really help us to stop the reaction from continuing. Yes. Okay. We're on the same page. Good. Great. And interesting, when we look at side effect profile, there's much fewer side effects of diphenhydramine given either IV or IM, especially in the doses that we that we uh, that we um, have in the in the protocols, and that's 25 to 50. Um, some of the big things we'll see, uh, we can see a little bit of generalized fatigue, and then we can see the whole cocktail of symptoms that happen in any anticholinergic um, uh, medication. All right, and uh, we have. One more medication, uh, which was in addition in 2011, that interestingly a lot of providers have been talking a lot about for quite a number of years actually in, in uh, dealing with both anaphylaxis and severe asthmatic patients, um, which was added in. But interestingly, if I were to uh, look at the data from across our state, there seems to be disparity in uh, Patients who are, whose primary impression was defined as allergy or anaphylaxis by EMS providers um, who actually received epinephrine but didn't receive methylprednisone or solumedrol. Um, and the thing to remember, so solumedrol is a uh, corticosteroid. It's a really potent anti-inflammatory. So when we give solumedrol to our patients, um, we're trying to reverse all of the effects that we were talking about earlier. So we're going to see larger scale reduction in edema, um, you know, the itchiness, all of that swelling. Um, and I, I believe Matt has some uh, information that he would like to share with you guys. Yeah, you know, the MDPB talked a lot about steroids and the application of steroids in, in allergic reactions in 2010 when we were preparing for the 2011 um, uh, protocol update. And we remember that we introduced steroids in really two instances. One is in the uh, patient with reactive airways disease, especially uh, asthma. Um, and there is some, there's, a, there's a growing body of literature that the early application of anti-inflammatory medicines such as solumedrol for the asthmatic patient actually decreases the incidence of admission or admission to the ICU, especially there. A lot of that literature is coming out of the pediatric emergency medicine literature. Now, what we know about steroids is they, they don't really take effect very early, right? So they, they don't have, they don't, the effects of steroids are really um, four to six hours after the provision of the medication. And the goal of steroids, along with sort of the anti-inflammatory uh, properties is to decrease what we call the biphasic response. And the way that I think of this is that the allergen uh, perpetuates in your system and you can see a essentially a secondary uh, allergic type reaction usually in the 72-hour range after the primary exposure. Um, and so we typically in emergency medicine will 
treat a patient with what we call a burst or a pulse dose of steroids for about four days after, um, after the original event to decrease that potential for, a, uh, for the biphasic uh, reaction. But again, there's also anti-inflammatory effects here uh, that we, we gain benefit from. And even though the effects occur four to six hours from the delivery of the medication, remember, we see patients first, we set the pace for patient care, and we are the only way to get medications on board a patient in a timely fashion. In fact, based on some of the neurologic literature and some of the recent um, focused uh, 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 treatment for stroke literature that's coming on, it's really hard in emergency rooms to get a medication on board a patient um, within one to two hours from the symptom onset. But we see a patient early, we can provide a medication early, and by the time the, the physician has seen the patient, the patient may have one or two hours of steroids in their system doing uh, or you know, kicking in before, uh, before the doctor or nurse even sees the patient based on our transport time and the, how busy the ED is and what else is going on. But we can provide medications really early to these folks. And the hopes are that we can uh, uh, have that, that anti-inflammatory uh, um, uh, response will kick in at some point while they're in the ED earlier than it would have if we didn't provide them the medication. I don't know what you're talking about. I've, I've never arrived at a hospital and had to stand outside waiting to get into triage. Yeah, well, uh, keep, keep it, doesn't, it up. It doesn't happen. Keep it up. It'll, it'll, one of these days it might happen to you. I don't know. I guess I'd have to spend more time on a truck again, so which wouldn't be a bad thing. Yeah. So that's a, that's a, a, a sort of brief overview of allergy and anaphylaxis, a little bit about pathophysiology, a little background uh, about uh, the epidemiology, some of the presentations, the treatments. Um, just to, to, to back up a little bit, remember that lots of different allergens, allergens exist out there. The most common ones that exist really are food-based as well as antibiotics. Those are some of the ones that we run into uh, most of the time. So peanuts, shellfish, food-based antibiotics, especially the penicillin classification. Most of the reactions that we end up seeing, somewhere in the order of 80 to 90%, end up being skin-based. So that's angioedema and urticaria. About 70% of patients will have respiratory symptoms. And then 45% of folks will have cardiovascular symptoms, and 45% of folks will have those GI symptoms. And that's the atypical ones that Don mentioned based on that study. So I think, I think we've done a good job of outlining treatment for anaphylaxis, which, you know, again, we're getting to that point of respiratory cardiovascular compromise um, where the application of epinephrine comes into play and the, the three total medications that we discussed, you know, we want to see the application of those. Remembering that uh, current in our current protocol that um, our dose of solumedrol, the uh, first dose is 125 milligrams. Um, Again, that, that's IV, and that's with medical control. Um, both, I, I think we should talk briefly about also what we do for those uh, allergic reactions that haven't reached the state of anaphylaxis. What, what do we want to do with those patients? Oh, that's a great. So that's a great idea. Let's talk about those, but let's also talk about the really sick ones a little bit too. So okay. let's start off with the people who are manifesting only the symptoms. Uh, only the skin symptoms, or maybe the skin and the uh, maybe urticaria, angioedema, and a little bit of GI symptoms. They haven't really, they haven't pushed over into the 
airway angioedema or the pulmonary symptoms or the cardiovascular symptoms. And I, I think that in that population of patients, we have the luxury of time, but we also, uh, we still hold the, within our grasp, medications necessary to treat those folks. And the two mainstay medications for those folks who are manifesting the urticaria angioedema and maybe GI symptoms would be uh, certainly antihistamine, so diphenhydramine, uh, uh, and then uh, steroids in those folks. So we want to give those folks a combination of Benadryl and Solimedrol. And then we also want to treat their symptoms. So if they're manifesting GI symptoms, including uh, nausea uh, or vomiting, we have the ability to give them uh, Zofran for those symptoms um, uh, as well. So that's the minor symptoms. We can treat the minor symptoms with, a, with diphenhydramine um, and steroids. The really sick folks, or the folks who are having cardiovascular collapse, we talked about intramuscular epinephrine, and then don't forget that with online medical control, you can repeat that, and Don mentioned earlier on, five to 10 minute window for repeating epinephrine. Another thing that we didn't mention earlier on as a possible treatment for these folks are our volume uh, fluids. Remember that once the epi does wear off um, uh, the person, if there's, it could be, uh, persistently hypotensive, and that's where uh, resuscitation in the form of volume boluses becomes really important. So that's one of the one other strategy for the sick patient with anaphylaxis. And then we have folks who um, we give epi to who um, um, may not have may may not have responses to that epi. And one of the things that to remember is that a good number of our patients have uh, hypertension. Those hypertensive patients may be on beta blockers. Beta blockers work at the beta receptor, and epi is trying to also work at the beta receptor. And um, if we don't uh, give the patient, if we don't um, give the patients medications to counter that, you may not see effects from your epinephrine. And the medication and the protocol that we've suggested um, to use there is glucagon. Um, to help um, uh, uh, the patient receiving epinephrine who is also on a beta blocker. So those are two things to think about in sick folks, not to forget IV fluids um, uh, and IV boluses in these people, along with the other medications we mentioned. Also, don't forget in the patient who's on a beta blocker, so those are the uh, propranolol, latanolol, et cetera, the olols medicines, um, uh, give glucagon as well. One milligram IV Q5 minutes um, uh, uh, for patients on beta blockers who are receiving epinephrine. Now, I think it's also, uh, we can step back for a second, all of the medications um, that we've actually discussed, if for some reason this patient's in a position where we can't gain IV access because they've become so volume depleted from edema or we just, because they uh, have so much edema, all of these medications actually can be given IM. Um, it's not the preferred method for some of them, and obviously uh, the uptake is going to be slower. But if it comes down to it, you do have the option to give these medications IM. Great. What else have we missed on? What else did we cover about anaphylaxis? Off the top of my head, I'm not coming up with anything. Well, if there are questions that you all have at the end of this, please uh, either uh, we're hoping to be able to get some functionality in our, in our website to be able to push us questions. But in the interim, please contact Don if you have questions about allergies or anaphylaxis after this. Uh, also, please uh, don't forget what we talked about earlier. This is really our, our, our hopes are that you find this useful. Please give us comments. 
about the podcast. Um, push us questions you have. Uh, also, um, if you are interested in any updates from ADMS, let us know. And also, um, please, if you're interested in any educational topics in particular, let us know. Uh, I'll close with saying that um, we are in the near future hoping to engage with the regional medical directors who helped draft the protocol updates, and we're really hoping to have them in, uh, involved in this process to give you an opportunity to hear directly from them uh, why they were interested in some of the protocol changes that occurred, uh, give you more insight into uh, why we're doing what we're doing. And uh, Don and I are also working on a few other uh, projects to give you insight into the protocols, and as we develop those more and more, we'll, uh, number one, come back and talk to you about them, and number two, make them available. Fantastic. Uh, thank you for your time, as always. And uh, everybody out there, make sure you stay safe, uh, and uh, we'll be talking to you soon. And take care. <laughs>